1: I have
2: you loud and clear. (laughs) Hello. 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 Hello.
3: Hello. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Science.
2: And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or.
3: Time. The brain. Life. The universe.
2: By 2050, the global population is set to rise to more than 10 billion people. But right now, one in ten of us are already suffering from chronic hunger. So this week we're exploring how we reconcile a rising population with an already hungry world. One solution might be to do what I'll be doing later, eating insects.
3: Lovely. Plus, in the news this week, scientists are one step closer to understanding autism and we take a moment to say goodbye to the Phil Islander. I'm Kat Arney.
2: I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. First, children born with autism struggle with their speech and language development, and they often also have social and behavioural difficulties. Scientists don't know what causes the condition, but in some cases, the problem has been traced back to infections in an affected child's mother during her pregnancy. Now, researcher Dan Littman from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in New York has found that in mice, a signal made by the immune system when it reacts to infection can cross the placenta and enter the brain of a developing fetus, where it can then trigger the mouse equivalent of autism.
1: There has been speculation for quite some time that infection during pregnancy can uh, lead to a, a higher propensity for having children with autism spectrum disorder. A number of years ago, researchers developed an animal model, and it's been shown that a substance that mediates uh, communication between cells of the immune system needs to be present in the mother in order for the behavioral deficits in the offspring. So we wanted to know what were the downstream pathways uh, from this particular immune molecule and found that there is transmission across uh, the placental uh, barrier and across the blood-brain barrier in the fetus such that substances from the immune system of the mother can actually talk to the developing uh, central nervous system in the fetus.
2: So what is the molecule that's been found to be in the immune system of the mother that does this?
1: The molecule is called interleukin-17 and it is a molecule that's known to be important in uh, protecting various barriers of the body such as the intestinal tract, uh, from all the uh, microorganisms that are present there. Uh, And it's also a molecule that's known to be involved uh, in autoimmune diseases, such as psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis.
2: How did you find this? What did you actually do to show what the impact and influence of that interleukin signal was?
1: What we did was to induce the inflammation in the mother using a substance that mimics a viral infection, And after that, we injected an antibody that targets this immune system molecule and basically inactivates it and showed that if we do that, we no longer see the behavioural changes in the offspring. And we also don't see the changes in the pattern of brain development uh, in, in the fetal development.
2: How do you know then that the interleukin signal is what is going across the placenta and influencing the developing brain? And not engaging with or changing something else that then goes into the developing baby and causes the autism like picture.
1: The evidence is that uh, we discovered that a receptor for this particular mediator, interleukin 17, is present in the developing fetal brain. And we can actually inject this mediator directly into the fetal brain and uh, basically reproduce the behavioral and uh, developmental changes. And this only occurs if the fetus has a receptor for this mediator. So very likely, this is the molecule that's going across the placenta, across the developing blood-brain barrier and acting on the fetal brain.
2: And is that sensitivity there all through pregnancy? Or is there a sort of vulnerability window when an infection in the mother is most likely to produce an infant with behavioural change?
1: We believe that only during the second trimester is there uh, susceptibility for the transmission of this particular behavioural change.
2: What is the purpose to the brain of using this particular signal? Infections are common. Infections in pregnant mothers are common. It seems rather bizarre that the brain should be so sensitive to such a common signal in such a devastating
1: way. This is a very interesting question. A lot of receptors Uh, are used for multiple purposes. It is possible that it's a receptor for another mediator that we don't yet know about. Uh, It is possible that this particular mediator does actually act on that receptor for purposes we don't yet understand.
2: You did this in a mouse. Do humans have the same transmitter chemicals, the same signals that the immune system uses in these mice, and therefore is this relevant to humans as well, do you think?
1: Yeah, Humans have uh, almost exactly the same set of mediators and receptors. In fact, the mediator interleukin-17 is critical in illnesses like psoriasis. And the receptor for interleukin-17 is present in human brain, although this hasn't been looked at in great detail yet to see whether it's present in the same types of cells as in the mouse.
3: Dan Lippmann there. And those results were announced this week in the journal Science. Into
2: outer space now, into a comet far, far away and getting further. Philae is the lander that shot to fame when it landed, not once, but in fact three times possibly, as it bounced across the surface of comet 67P. It's part of a mission that was decades in the making and also a YouTube sensation, thanks to that reaction from Monica Grady when it landed. <coughs> July and the Rosetta probe that delivered it are now both nearing the ends of their operational lives. So Connie Orbach has been looking over what the first mission ever to land on and analyse a comet has achieved, beginning with mission scientist Andrew Coates. What's happening now is that the comet, the,
4: the spacecraft Rosetta... And Philae the lander, which is still on the surface of the comet, these are all getting further away from the sun, um, further and further with every second as we speak. Of course, as we get towards the end of January, then the temperature in the lander is getting lower. There's a particular temperature limit of minus fifty-one degrees centigrade, where um, it gets too cold for the batteries and too cold for the electronics to work. So we sort of give up hope really um, after the end of uh, after the end of January.
5: A sad thought for those of us that have become attached to the little lander. But all is not lost. Rosetta is still in good shape and will keep orbiting until September. For now, though, let's say our goodbyes. Fili lander, this is your life. Let's start by delving back into our archives. This is Ian Wright, a scientist working on the Rosetta mission.
6: Rosetta was born as a Comet Nucleus Sample Return Mission, so this was not merely going to go to a comet, it was going to drill down three metres into the surface, collect a core and bring it back to Earth undisturbed. It turned out that this was technologically quite challenging and uh, beyond the financial means of, uh, of the World Space Agencies, because this was going to have to be a joint venture. So, uh, eventually, in the early 90s, that idea was sort of knocked on the head. Uh, at which point, ESA decided to go it alone and, and do this one-way mission. And then, all of a sudden, there was absolutely no chance of doing that. So, the question was, well, if you can't bring the sample to, to the instrument, can you take the instrument to the sample? And um, that's ultimately yeah. what we had to, mm. had to do. to uh, top. allumage
1: vulcan, Decollage.
5: Rosetta launched back in 2004. It was then a good 10-year wait for it to reach the comet 67P. This was the site of the first ever soft landing of a probe onto a comet, and the scene of the celebration made news around the world. How audacious, how
7: exciting, how unbelievable to be able
0: to dare to land on a comet. We are the first to have
5: done that, and that will stay forever.
4: Hollywood is good, but Rosetta is better.
5: But amid the excitement, not everything was going exactly to plan. Here's Andrew Coates again.
4: Something was obviously going wrong. You could see it in the eyes of the controllers and some frowns and so on from the control room. And We found out that it had bounced Um, to about you know something like 100 meters or a little bit more than that perhaps away from the surface and then came down again bounced off the surface again and then came to rest finally in this really difficult place with boulders and next to an icy cliff and in an orientation with one leg up in the air um, of the lander which you can see on the images
5: The problem with this slightly awkward landing was that Philae was in a shadow, meaning no light could get to its solar panels and the batteries only lasted two and a half days. But it wasn't all bad news. The bouncing gave Philae exposure to different areas of the comet and it still managed to send back 80% of the data.
4: Anything you get from a lander like this is actually really good information. So we're able to, um, uh, to get several new organic molecules um, identified by the mass spectrometers. Those had never been seen in remote sensing or in in in-situ measurements of comets before. And also finding that the magnetic field of the comet is non-existent. And so that puts constraints on the importance of the magnetic field in the beginning of the solar system. Now, there have been some theories about magnetism being very important in terms of bringing the early planetesimals together. These are the, th- the building blocks of planets. And it turns out that this now, according to the um, results from Philae and the Rosetta orbiter, the combination of those two, that actually turns out not to be the case. And so, um, uh, so magnetism actually didn't play a role in the, in the early solar system
5: maybe it's just me but we've all got a bit attached to philae we give it human characteristics and the idea of of sending it off is so much sadder i think because philae seems like a friend almost
4: so both the orbiter and the lander have their own twitter accounts and it was amazing you know they, they were effectively giving both of them their own personality and getting philae to contact and say yes i'm alive and able to be sending data um sounded so familiar and um and and really does make you identify um with these space projects. This is, you know, a great way of getting the public involved in space missions. I mean, they seem very remote of course, and um uh, to actually be able to empathize with it and, and be there with it almost was uh, uh, was fantastic and a, a new way of doing outreach. And I think that particular um, aspect of it with Rosetta in particular has been has been extremely successful.
5: So Philo is gone, but hopefully not forgotten. Absolutely. (laughs) What's the legacy that Philo's left behind? There'll be learnings, I'm sure, and are are we going to see... Any more Philae going out afterwards? Maybe fillet babies landing on more comets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
4: I'm sure we will. So, so you know, at some point, of course, people will propose um, more cometary landers. There will be, uh, you know, one type of comet which is becoming more and more important now: a main belt comets. And so, these this is a new type of sort of asteroid, but it's in between an asteroid and a comet. And these are um, uh, objects which appear to um, have water, have activity. In the same way that a comet does, but it's in the asteroid belt, and so these are maybe the more likely things to have actually brought water and possibly organic molecules to the Earth. And so that type of object is something which um, which will have exploration in
2: future, I'm sure. An amazing achievement. That was Andrew Coates from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London, and before him, the Open University's Ian Wright. And they were speaking with Naked Scientist Connie Orbach.
3: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at scientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Still to come, 3D printing a machine gun. And how will we feed the world in future? Now,
2: seagrasses are marine plants that actually evolved first on land and they've since migrated back into the world's oceans. They might hold the key to freshwater shortages in farming, according to scientists in Saudi Arabia. That's because they've decoded the DNA of one of these plant species, and by comparing the genetic sequence with land-living relatives of seagrasses, including rice, they can see which genes have been altered to endow the plants with the ability to thrive in seawater. And now they know this, the same genes can be bred into food plants, so they too can tolerate much saltier soils, as Carlos Duarte explains.
8: We have a published an analysis of the DNA sequence of a group of plants called seagrass that can grow in the fully submerged in seawater that allow us to understand the changes that higher plants underwent to be able to colonize this environment and that has that has implications for our hopes to be able to grow crop plants that will feed the world in the future Not with fresh water, which is becoming increasingly scarce, but with salt water, seawater.
2: Now, when you say colonised the ocean, do you mean that these plants didn't come from the ocean in the first place? The plants we see in the sea, this, this group of them, came out of the sea and went back again?
8: So we're talking about flowering plants. And flowering plants evolved from marine ancestors that then first colonised fresh waters and wetland type of environments, and then they went on from there to colonise dry land, and they also went back and recolonized the ocean where their ancestors had originated from. How do you know they did that? Because we have molecular tools and looking at the structure of the DNA, we can uh, establish the ancestry of different groups of plants And by that ancestry, then we know which ones evolved first and which one descended from the previous ones. How would I recognise a seagrass if I saw one? They are rather inconspicuous to us and they are like just grass. Our audience can probably see them when they walk around the beaches in low tide and they will be plants anywhere from 4-5 or centimetres in size to up to 2-metre length uh, leaves. How do they reproduce? So they are flowering plants, so they reproduce sexually, but all of them are clonal also. So they are able to produce many copies along a stem called rhizome that lies horizontally on the sediment. And we also discovered that some of these plants, seagrass, they are the largest and the longest living organisms still present on Earth. And in the Mediterranean, we found a set of particular clones that extended over more than 10 kilometers of uh, seafloor. So they were massive, uh, many, many times the weight of blue whales. And they also, we calculated their age to be about uh, between 30,000 and 100,000 years old, the plants that we see living today. So very long-lived organisms and very large.
2: Given that these plants are very similar to grasses and cereals and rice which let's face it feeds the majority of humans on earth given those similarities how can you exploit that and what you've learned from the genome to potentially turn these plants into food crops is that possible
8: Well, that may be possible, and in fact, uh, looking at the use of these plants by different cultures, at least two of the 60 species have been used and are being used by some cultures as a source of food and staples. Already? Already, yes. One of them is eelgrass. This produces uh, seeds that are very similar to rice, and the city Indians in Baja California, then they traditionally harvest these uh, seeds and use them in the same way that we use rice today. And another plant is called Enhalus acroides that grows in the Southeast Asia. And that one produces very large uh, seeds that uh, have the shape of a, and the size of a nut. Are they any uh, good? Do
2: they taste nice?
8: I actually have eaten them and they're quite, quite nice. And they're harvested and also uh, eaten by people in the Philippines and other regions in South, Southeast Asia.
2: So we could potentially sort of increase that as, as a food source. But what about also borrowing from biology and taking the knowledge these plants have evolved to tolerate those environments and bringing that back into land-dwelling plants, given the close relationship, to confer the ability to grow in really quite poor soils or salt-dominated soil.
8: Yeah, so indeed uh, that was one of the drivers of our research, was to try to understand how these plants were able to cope with full-strength seawater and grow in full-strength seawater so we could then transfer these mechanisms to some of the crop plants And the candidate target plant will be rice, because rice also is an aquatic plant. And if we look at the family tree of higher plants, rice is actually very close to seagrass. So now that we have discovered how the seagrass are able to cope and grow in full-strength seawater, we're hoping that we might be able to find ways in which we can assist rice to uh, be able to be grown in increasingly brackish water, perhaps all the way to a full strength seawater and therefore alleviate the pressures on freshwater resources that are capping already and will uh, constrain in the future our capacity to produce food to feed an increasing human population on earth.
2: Carlos Duarte from the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST, in Saudi Arabia. He announced those results this week in the journal Nature. And now Kat is taking on another piece of scientific dogma. This time, the term myth conception is rather appropriate.
3: Well, if you're a woman in your 20s or 30s and enjoy idly scrolling through social media, there comes a time when you realise that the pictures of your friends having fun in the pub seem to have been overtaken by photos of your friends with bulging bumps, rapidly followed by pictures of their bouncing babies. Inevitably, there will be comments about baby brain and preg head, or momnesia as it's known in the US, the commonly held idea that being pregnant and having a baby somehow affects your memory, making you flaky and forgetful. But is there any scientific evidence to support this? The fact is that the evidence here is mixed. Some studies have shown that compared with women who weren't pregnant, baby-bearing women do worse at certain memory tasks, particularly if they involve short-term memory. There's a particularly notorious study from 1997 showing that women's brains actually shrink during late pregnancy and take a full six months to go back to normal. Research with rats has shown that females actually seem to get mentally sharper after having a baby and are better able to find food than those who've never had pups. And a small 2015 study found no difference between pregnant women and mums and those who'd never popped a baby out. Finally, a recent analysis in the New Scientist magazine in January this year attempted to gather together all the evidence, concluding that while pregnancy and its hormonal storm does cause major changes in the brain and body, these aren't specifically linked to a change in mental agility. So what other explanations can science offer for women who do feel that their faculties have gone to pot while they're baking their bump? Well, for a start, there's the well-known effects on memory and learning of a lack of sleep, something that certainly can affect pregnant women and new parents. Then there's the psychological effects of shifting priorities and a, a new routine that a new baby brings. Some things just become less important and slip through the net when there's a tiny life to think about, and it's impossible to remember everything. Finally, there's also the phenomenon of confirmation bias. We all forget stuff and make mistakes. Women with or without children, and men too. But if you're pregnant, you might be more likely to ascribe your errors to baby brain. And because women who've had children are still more likely to be discriminated against when coming back into work than the sprogless, it's high time to forget about the myth of baby brain.
2: Thank you very much, Kat. And we'll have another Myth Conception next week. And do feel free to send in some suggestions for topics that you'd like Kat to look into. Back in 2013, a US group called Defense Distributed, headed by the then law student Cody Wilson, caused a stir when they unveiled a gun they'd made and successfully tested using 3D printing. Made principally from plastic, many expressed alarm that such a weapon could be used to bypass airport security scans, which would make it a useful tool for terrorists. Now the same group claimed to have come up with a plan for a mass-produced machine gun, made the same way. They say you could just download the instruction file and then feed it into your own 3D printer at home, and actually make the weapon.
3: This sounds like scary stuff, and we're joined now by Tim Minchell from the Cambridge Institute of Manufacturing. He's here to split fact from fiction and tell us what's really going on. Hi, Tim. Hello. How would this gun be made? How how do you actually 3D print a gun?
0: 3D printing is what's called an additive manufacturing process as opposed to a subtractive one. So in this case, you start off with nothing and build the object you want up layer by layer. So in this case, what's happening is that you're downloading a digital file that defines this object, in this case a gun, you send that to a, a 3D printer, which literally builds it up one layer at a time until you end up with an object which can be used as a gun.
3: So the big question is, of course, would it work? You know, if it's actually worth to painstakingly print one of these things, will it actually work? Should we be scared and running for the hills?
0: So it's a it's a great question and a very topical one. So I think... I have to be slightly careful here, but I suspect if ISIS want guns, they probably can find other ways to get them. So there's much more convenient ways of getting hold of a gun than 3D printing one.
3: Yeah, it seems like it's a a very convoluted way if you want to just kill someone.
0: Absolutely. So the problem here is that this uh, 3D printer's got the Star Trek replicator image that people think you just it's a plug-and-play thing. But actually, there's a huge amount of craft skill required to make sure that these printers work properly, and and big firms like Rolls-Royce and GE use this technology and they're comfortable with it because they've invested millions over a long period of time in developing this technology and see, And now they're seeing real benefits from it. But you can't just order a printer, open the box, plug it in and then print a reliable working gun. It's just not like
3: that. Some of my friends have 3D printers because they're a bit nerdy uh, and I see some of the stuff they make and I'm like, hmm, that looks nice. So a home 3D printer wouldn't have the finesse maybe that, that is needed to make a gun.
0: Yeah, and, and to put some, some facts behind this, so the National Ballistics Intelligence Agency, which I didn't know about before, have warned that these home-printed guns are a real and serious threat, but they're a threat to the user because most of the ones they tested blew up when they first used them. So there's a real problem here about what could look like a gun and what actually works like a gun. But this particular one that's been in the news, this which has the lovely name of the Shooty, it is a 3D-printed semi-automatic weapon, and it is made of predominantly plastic parts, but it's still needs some metal parts, barrels, um, firing pin, things like that, and it's really bulky to make it strong enough out of plastic to withstand these enormous pressures and the heat of repeated use. It has to be pretty huge
3: people won't be knocking this up in their garage any time soon
0: I don't think so I mean there are machines you can use to print a proper metal weapon and this has happened but that's not the 100-200 pound plastic printer these big ones they cost you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds require very specialist supplies of gas atomized powders and inert argon gas to provide the right environment and a lot of skill to get it to work right so those machines do exist and you could print a gun on them but it would be a fantastically way, expensive way of doing it
3: I mean moving back to the Plastic guns. So some people worry very much that if someone's got a plastic weapon, they could get through a, a metal detector or maybe get a gun onto a plane. Is that a serious risk?
0: There's always a risk, but um, so the metal detector bit, yes. If there is still a firing pin and a barrel, then those will be picked up. But then you could say, well, what about all the other bits? But if you you go online and look at the picture of this shooty gun, it's huge and pretty gun-like. And it would be quite hard to disguise that shape. So I think the other uh, sensors that they use at airports would pick up this strangely glowing gun-like object and might be a bit surprised to see it there.
3: And I guess you've got to have metal bullets.
0: And you have to have the bullets as well. We're, yes, that's very true.
3: So, yeah, they're not going to get through, are they? This is uh, an issue, I suppose, people will always want to raise these risks of 3D printing. Is there a risk that we could uh, throw the uh, the 3D printed baby out with the bathwater if we say, nope, this is all too dangerous, people are going to make bad stuff?
0: And this is a real concern. And so I guess it's the same with many new technologies. When it comes along, there is always a very often a good side to it and a less good side to it. And we see this very clearly with 3D printing. They're using them now, companies like Rolls and and GE, to make these incredible, much more powerful, efficient jet engines. In uh, medical care, we see perfectly customised orthotics and prosthetics being produced. There are really good uses of this to improve surgical outcomes and many, many more good things. But I think in the context of what we're talking about here, this is about digital rights management. This is actually about getting access to the know-how and how to make a gun and that know-how being available freely online. So this is really about the ability to produce an unlicensed, unregistered and hence untraceable weapon. Now, 3D printing is just one of the ways by which that could be done. But it's really about how do we control the design of 3D printed objects, not just for guns, but for all other objects as well.
3: Big questions, as always. Not always a technology problem, but a people problem. Thank you very much. It's Tim Mitchell from the Cambridge Institute of Manufacturing.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and with me, Chris Smith.
3: This week, we're taking a closer look at the global food chain from field to fork. In today's scientific world, why are people still going hungry? And what more do we need to solve the food security challenge? Later on, Chris will be sampling some unusual delicacies more commonly seen in a bush tucker trial, which might make you think again about where you get your protein.
2: Getting a bit nervous now. Uh, First, though, uh, we're joined now by Dr Tim Benton, who is the Professor of Population Ecology at Leeds University, and he's the champion of the UK's global food security programme. Tim, hello. What exactly is um, food security? What does that phrase mean? Uh, Food security roughly means having access to sufficient,
7: safe and nutritious food for a healthy life. And clearly, when, when when this term is used, most people think about the 800 million people or thereabouts who suffer chronic daily hunger. But it's also important to the poorest in all societies. So, for example, in the developed world, the poorest often have access to lots of cheap calories in terms of fat and sugar, but very poor nutrition. And that leads to an association between poverty and obesity and obesity and other diseases like diabetes. So food security is not just about starving people in Africa. It is a about health, nutrition and well-being
2: and all of the things that flow f- from those. It sounds slightly paradoxical, doesn't it, that in, in a bigger world and a hungrier world that actually one of the problems could be obesity. But as you say, food security equals good nutrition too. Absolutely, yeah. Now, how is the situation actually evolving or changing? We know that world population is increasing. It's increasing at the rate of maybe 1% per year, which doesn't sound like much. But if you do the compound interest formula, that's a doubling every 70 years or so. So hence the prediction of as many as maybe 10 to 12 billion by 2050.
7: Yes. So there are two things. One is the population growth. And the other is that as the world on average gets richer, people eat different things and they eat perhaps more intensively, produced food uh, which comes with a, a bit of an environmental impact the projections are that over the next 35 years up to mid-century demand for food is set to rise by between 50 and 100 percent, depending on on who you listen to and that's absolutely not impossible because over the last 35 years looking back the same time production has increased by just over 100 percent. the issue i think is not whether we can do it but whether we can do it in a way that is sustainable
2: Can we just go business as usual?
7: If we just carry on as we are, will we run out of food? I don't think we will run out of food. I think the issue is that the environment will suffer. It's not just that at the moment a quarter of the world's soils are degraded, agriculture is the biggest threat to biodiversity, a huge polluter of water through nitrogen fertiliser, but actually agriculture and food between them, in terms of the greenhouse gases they emit, accounts for about the same as all lighting all cars, all air travel all washing machines, all heating and all air conditioning. That means that if we carry on in the way that we're going with yields growing in the way that they are and demand growing in the way that it is by 2050, agriculture and food will account for about two degrees of global warming and that is more than all of the governments have just signed up to try and limit in Paris and if we miss the Paris targets through agriculture and food alone, clearly there isn't any space for any of the other things that we use energy for and that locks us into a World of
2: four or five degrees of global warming warming by the end of the century, which is truly horrific to think about. Should we not just invest the money instead of trying to, as as they put in the Martians, so well, science the hell out of this and increase our our food production? Shouldn't we just get to the nub of what's causing this, which is there are just too many people? Spend the money on population control instead. I don't think it's just that there there are too many people. I think it's also that
7: we place very significant demands on. The environment to produce what we want. So for example, if you look at the fact that about a third of the world's production is lost or wasted, if you look at the 2 billion people that are overweight and uh, consume too many calories, and if you look at the amount of resources that we grow and feed to livestock for, for meat production, if we changed our diets, we could easily reduce demand by somewhere up up to about a half. So it's not just about how do we grow more food, although clearly we do have to grow more food. It's also what is the ways that we can change the societal demand so that we can live within the planetary boundaries.
2: So to meet those obligations and to avoid destroying the planet in the way that you've outlined and probably leading to that gross increase in the amount of CO2 and therefore the attendant climate change it may drive – What's this going to take? What do we have to do right here and now? So I think there are the three broad classes of,
7: of solution, one is that we can do better in the field, we can uh, improve yields, we know we can improve yields using modern biotechnology and modern, modern plant breeding, whether or not it's GM is, is another discussion, but we can also increase efficiency of our, our agriculture, either by changing the plants or by using smarter machines, or we can uh, improve the way that we use land and use land much more smartly to reduce some of the environmental impacts. Clearly, there's a lot we can also do to reduce waste, which is the second of the three things. Um, At the moment, Europe and North America throws away from the home about the equivalent of all production from sub-Saharan Africa each year. So it's that sort of scale of things. And then the third basket is is to change diets. So in an American situation, I did the analysis last year, a family of four, eating an average amount of meat, driving two cars an average amount. They emit more greenhouse gases from the meat than they do from driving the cars. So just by reducing their meat to about half of what they did, what they would normally do is about equivalent of
2: getting rid of a family car. Perfectly and, uh, possible to do. And I'll be finding out one way in which we can cut the meat later in the programme, although I'm not sure I like the look of what's sitting on the table next to me. Tim Benton from the University of Leeds. Thank you very much.
3: Oh you coward Chris. Now clearly there are a lot of options but the first point at which we can intervene in the food supply chain is crop development. Alison Bentley is with us from NIAB the National Institute of Agricultural Botany. Hi Alison. We've been increasing crop yields for a long time so we get more and more out of each field. How actually does that work? How has the picture changed for our crops in recent years and what do we mean by more efficient crops?
9: Yeah, I guess the big turning point uh, for crop production or for wheat production specifically was the green revolution, which brought about reduced height uh, in our wheat and allowed it to use nutrients more efficiently and move those nutrients into the grain. And that was really the start of this increase in yields. And since that time, yields have incrementally increased. So we've got about a 1% increase in yield each year. And this is really the the product of the breeding process. So of breeders uh, crossing the best varieties with each other, selecting the best individuals and moving those forward into farmers' fields.
3: So what sort of timescale are we talking about? When did this revolution really start?
9: So that revolution started in the 1970s with the introduction of these reduced height types, allowing the plants to use nutrients more efficiently. And it's now that we're looking at the challenge of feeding this ever-growing population that we're saying actually we need more than these incremental increases to be able to fulfill that need.
3: Presumably there is some kind of limit though you can't you can't eventually grow wheat out of nothing.
9: Yeah and that's one of the questions I guess how far can we push it do we know what kind of ultimate type we're we're looking to end up with and then we have to also consider the environmental implications of being able to grow the maximum amount of wheat on a specific amount of land um, and the kind of inputs that's required to do that and the, the pest control and the insect control...
3: So wheat is really the plant that you're interested in. Tell me about some of the ways that you're trying to increase, I, I guess, the efficiency of wheat so it gets more more bang from its buck from the field.
9: Yeah, so wheat is very genetically complex. So it combines in its genomes the genomes of three ancestral grass species. And these came together over a number of chance hybridization events in nature and so what we're doing within our programme at NIAB is going back to the start of this process and looking at these progenitor species which occur across a huge geographical range and saying what can we get from this diversity which we can then use to improve wheat
3: so you're looking at the ancestors of wheat and saying where where did it come from and can we make it again exactly
9: so we're basically going back to the start of wheat and saying can we make this again and then can we use this as a vehicle to access diversity that's not already available uh, in wheat itself and what does this diversity give us which we can then transfer to breeding
3: so you've talked a lot about breeding and how since the 70s it's been traditional plant breeding techniques you know persuading plants to have sex with each other that have brought the changes that we've seen but we've heard a lot about things like genetic modification and now some of these new genome editing technologies that are starting to come online and would it be more efficient to use those rather than just trying to breed plants together to see what comes out? I think they're definitely exciting technologies, but one of the
9: limitations is that you need to have a gene identified or a set of candidate genes, which you know you want to manipulate. And when we talk about something like yield or the way a plant uses nitrogen fertilizer, those are very complex traits which also interact with the environment. So underlying those traits, such as yield, you've probably got the additive effect of hundreds or maybe even thousands of genes. So your actual practical ability to make a plant genetically modified for all of those individual genes is very challenging. So it's more likely that we can use information about that genetic makeup in an additive way using sequencing technology and new technologies coming online uh, that were going to be able to use that information for breeding Uh, but of course genetic modification gene editing are exciting technologies and when we talk about something like a disease resistance gene then you can see huge potential for that technology to be used.
3: You think when people drive past a, a field of wheat do they they think gosh you know that is the product of all this breeding and all this technology? Yeah,
9: I mean, it's amazing that that's the product of hundreds of thousands of years of domestication, evolution. Uh, the technology that's gone into that is is really immense.
3: The fantastic science of our agriculture. Thank you very much. That's Alison Bentley from the UK's National Institute of Agricultural Botany.
2: In a modern globalised food system, agricultural production is only the beginning of the story. Eventually, foodstuffs make their way to the shops. And that is where you come in. Or where you think you come in. Felicity Bedford went to do her weekly shop and she took along marketing expert Eric Levy to see how shops actually decide what you want to buy.
10: Our behaviours in the supermarket have a big influence on our health and there's a lot of things going on in the supermarket that we don't always realise, but I'm sure we'll encounter some of them with our shopping trip here.
11: Let's go shopping. The first thing that I'm picking up is some apples. In front of me, I've got deals. I've got different prices, different types of apple.
10: Well, Felicity, the first thing I notice here is that uh, one of the apples in particular is on sale. But I think consumers would probably be drawn to getting a lot of apples. Whether they eat all of them or not, who knows? But it's kind of the attention thing. It's attention grabbing. And we really like to feel like we're getting a good deal.
11: So the deal stickers themselves are much more brightly colored. And you're right. That's the first thing I spotted when mm-hmm. I came up to this store. But I'm going to pick up the other pack of apples and only the one. There's only one of me. I don't need 12 apples for my weekly shop. Here at the milk aisle, I am presented once again with an amazing array of choice. Turning around behind me, the puddings and yogurts within the supermarket. This is not something I would normally pick up, but I'm sensing they've been positioned here for a reason.
10: So there's something uh, in psychology called the licensing effect, where if you buy something healthy, all of a sudden you're going to feel really good about yourself. You think, wow, I just bought this item that's really healthy. So what that allows us to do is indulge in something that's less healthy. So after picking up the milk, turn around, and all of a sudden there's these uh, chocolate mousse desserts, and they're on sale, we're going to be more likely to tend to pick them up because we've just gotten the milk.
11: I'm looking towards the six for four pounds. I can eat those over a couple of weeks.
10: Mm, That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? The number six, that's kind of in psychology called an anchor. Uh, So consumers tend to anchor on the number that's recommended for you on the label. And we might actually be more likely to get six or maybe even four or three compared to if there were no number there for us to anchor on.
11: So basically what the supermarket's doing is telling me, buy six.
10: Definitely. One of the things supermarkets try to do is increase the amount that we purchase through some of these psychological techniques.
11: And also the fact that I am now considering buying six is obviously having an impact upon my diet over the next few weeks.
10: When we have more of something there right in front of us, we're actually more likely to eat it more quickly. So we may think that, well, if I buy the six, I'll have one a week for dessert. But what tends to happen is you say, wow, look, I have all these chocolate desserts. Maybe you'll have one per night because it's there and it's in front of you and you're looking forward to the next dessert already.
11: Finishing up the list of things that I need to be picking up today, we're going to grab some cereal. And you've picked a couple of things off of the shelf for comparison purposes. What should I be looking at on these two packets?
10: Mm, Well, looking at these, Felicity, I noticed we have uh, two brands of cereal that look like they're both healthy, but looking at this one, it actually has a lot, lot more sugar. So people might think just by seeing it has bran, they're going to assume it's a very healthy cereal, maybe without comparing it to other cereals. So it's really important to compare.
11: Absolutely. They look like they're very similarly marketed. They both say that they're whole grain guaranteed, Fibre, less sugar, even though that's the one which you've just pointed out, has got loads more sugar and salt within it. The marketing is almost identical. They're both bright colours and I would have been fooled. You're in a rush, you pick up what you know to be a reliable brand perhaps, that's your brand marketing, and also what you think from the packaging looks like a very healthy product. I've finished my shop, I've filled up my basket, let's head for the checkout.
10: Sounds good. Very sad that our shopping trip has come to an end. But one thing I noticed is that your shopping basket there was pretty much filled to the top or even higher. So it actually turns out that supermarkets that have larger shopping baskets tend to uh, get more filled in them. So people tend to fill their baskets to the top uh, when they see a larger basket. So there's another little psychological technique that supermarkets will use on consumers.
11: The pressure to make the healthy choice to make the sustainable choice is pretty much down to consumers. And we've seen that around the supermarket it's a very confusing environment. There's lots of marketing, there's lots of different signals being thrown at consumers. Is this really the way forward in improving food security within the retail environment?
10: Well, I think that part of it is on consumers to know what they want, if they want to eat healthier, uh, want to eat things that are more sustainable, less packaging. So part of it is definitely on the consumer. But on the other hand, there's a lot of talk about legislation, for example, to stop the two-for-one deals or all these multiple buying thing deals. So a lot of times, you know, consumers, the deal will look good in the moment but then they'll take home all the stuff and they're not going to eat it it'll expire and they're just going to throw it out and it's going to be bad for the environment so i think that there are some things that the government might be able to do well to help
11: my intentions are always good when i go shopping i'm intending to buy a a healthy set of meals for the week ahead but that's not always how it pans out
10: well felicity it's not just you So there is a natural tendency when we have higher level values. Say we want to help save the environment, eat healthy. Those are things that are a little more abstract than things like having something that's right in front of you or a lower price. So a lot of times when we see things tempting in front of us, we'll tend to go with that rather than these values that we have. So things like lists can definitely help keep you on track in doing what you want to do. And, uh, you know, similar to other behavioural interventions, smoking, drinking, whatnot, the more that you kind of think ahead about what you want to do, as opposed to just deciding on the moment, you're going to be able to take a step back and will help you make better choices. It's
2: food for thought, isn't it? Next time you go in the supermarket, just remember what you heard there. That was Eric Levy from Cambridge University's Judge Business School, and he was out on a shopping trip with Felicity Bedford. Next week, they're off to Regent Street. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. With me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at scientist.com, find us on Facebook, and our Twitter handle is at Naked Scientist.
3: Now, I noticed that there weren't any crickets in Felicity's basket, but I've heard they're the latest food fad. Chris, are you ready for the next part of the show?
2: Well I'm not so sure actually because sitting to my right is Dan Stott. He's the co-founder of the Sussex-based startup Bug Boys. Now Dan normally when we get someone behind a microphone we do a sound check with them and it's customary to ask them what did you have for breakfast but that's actually appropriate to the program this week so what did you have for breakfast? So I had a uh, porridge with mealworms sprinkled on top this morning. <laughs> mealworms. Yep, so you mealworms. really do eat insects. You put your money where your mouth is, yep, quite literally. I believe it's good health. What, what is all this business about eating insects, though? Where does all this come from? What's the rationale for doing this?
12: So basically, we should eat insects for several reasons. Firstly, they're really good for our health. They are very high in protein, comparable to some of the highest protein powders in the market. However, insects are much better for us because they contain high amounts of vitamins, minerals and omegas and more recently discovered prebiotics, which are great for our gut bacteria. So for health reasons alone, we
2: should be eating them. I also, mean, is this a valid alternative to me eating meat, though?
12: Yeah, so basically, over a span of a year, if a family of four ate one meal a week with insects instead of meat, they would save the earth 650,000 litres of water.
2: And where do we get these insects from? What sort of insects are you talking about encouraging people to eat, And and are they sustainable to produce? At the moment, we're mainly talking about
12: crickets, mealworms and grasshoppers. They're the main ones that we know most about the nutritional profile. In terms of the sustainability side of things, um, there's lots of aspects. You need hardly any space to produce them, a little water, a little feed for them. All you need is heat. And eventually you want to link these farms up with places that are
2: wasting heat. You've brought in quite a good collection to show us. Would you like to get me to eat some of this? And try. Oh, yes, I, I've please. never tried eating any of this. I saw a street market in Beijing where they were selling things a bit like this, mm-hmm. and I I the opportunity at the time. So, <laughs> what should we start with? So,
12: I think we will start off uh, with an introductory. I've made um, sort of a protein ball with some uh, sort of dates and nuts, and then there's about ten uh, percent in one of them and twenty percent cricket flour in the Crickets. In the, so, this is ground so this is up is crickets. Ground up crickets. to make a flour percent, and then it makes more of a powder substance oh that's delicious
2: mm. I'll tell you what i've got here actually to help this go down well mm-hmm. because also i've got some beer now, We don't normally drink on air but this is special mm-hmm. beer been sent to felicity this week so I'll just crack into one of these to help wash this down hold on would you like to try one of these yeah i'd love to I'll have a beer i've got one here that's for pairing um, allison's here as well so good on to her there you go have a beer Right, cheers everybody, I'm going to you this a try OK, Mark's out of ten for the beer I'd say a nine
9: Yeah, definitely a nine I think
2: that's a nine Do you know what that's made with? This is beer brewed with the throwaway bread Stuff that would have gone in the bin And actually it's been used to make beer And we'll find out more about that sort of thing in a second What else can you tempt me with, Dan? I've got some whole insects here Can we eat those? Yeah, we can. I'm, I'm feeling daring now. i've uh, now, I've gone to the ten percent level. I feel uh, I feel like I can I can push <laughs> the boat out a bit.
12: So these small ones are buffalo worms. Okay, these naturally eat plants and grains.
2: Actually, um, so they're dry, they they're dried, aren't they? So these are bit...
12: dehydrated. Yeah,
2: they're actually very nice. I'm I'm having several handfuls of them. Mm. How do I describe it? It's crunchy. Um, it tastes a bit like I'm chewing on a, a, a stick. It's a bit of a woody flavour. It's not unpleasant at all actually. There's something bigger on the plate. What's the so, larger option?
12: The grasshoppers. Slightly larger than the other insects, but
2: mm. they're almost a, the size a... of my finger. That and it's got all its head and everything. Someone's luckily removed most of the legs because that wouldn't be too nice. You wouldn't mm. eat the whole thing. Yep, but that's thing, pretty please. big. It's pretty big. But... It doesn't look so nice. Um. Actually, if I just shut my eyes and I didn't see it I would say that's extremely tasty It it just looks a bit off-putting But yes. once you get past the sort of visual thing it's that initial barrier at first mm. I think we should ask Alison to, to have a go as well
9: I'm definitely going to try a cricket I, I think, think you should the... do one of
2: those big grasshoppers Really? Yeah, I'll, go, go I'll start I, with I, the I'll cricket go, go on then
9: It is, it's very good it's like a, You can imagine it as a cracker, I think Kind of a, or with crackers, a, yeah. Of
2: cheese. Dan Scott, he's a student actually at Brighton University where he's studying geology, but he is one of the co-founders of Bug Boys, and you can find out more about what they do on the internet. Now, the beer I was referring to, it's actually called Toast Ale, and it's made from waste bread that would have been thrown away. The man behind this is Tristram Stewart, and he's the founder of the organisation Feedback, which looks at how much food goes to waste and what we need to do to tackle the problem. And he explained why this is a priority to Felicity Bedford. We've been told by
13: some of the major international institutions that we need to increase food production by 50, 60, some even say 100% to feed the human population expected on the planet by 2050. The claim is that we can increase this production whilst decreasing environmental impact. In fact, the main way in which we are increasing global food production is by extending the amount of land that we currently put under cultivation. That means chopping down forests and draining wetlands. We know that a third of all of the food currently being produced is wasted somewhere between fields and people's plates. It's wasted on farms, in factories, in supermarkets and restaurants, and of course in our own homes. That is a very easy place to start if what we need to do is increased food availability, and of course it can be accomplished without increasing production per se.
11: Surely, because of the the nature of globalised food production and distribution, we need to be, to play devil's advocate here a little bit, we need to be producing more food than is needed by the global population.
13: It's absolutely right. If you want to guarantee food security, you don't produce just exactly what a population needs, and it won't take long for you to come across a bad harvest and then you're in dire straits. Human civilizations have, since the very beginning of agriculture, aimed, quite rightly, to produce surplus. The problem is that that very basic instinct has now got to such an extent that the surpluses we produce are so far in excess of what is actually required to guarantee food security. To give you an example, in a rich country like the United States, there is available in the shops and restaurants enough food to feed twice the population of that country. We have such an enormous buffer between us and real hunger if we used our resources more efficiently.
11: We're going to inevitably have some food waste. Do you have any proposal for how that should be dealt with better?
13: Yes, absolutely. One of the real opportunities that we're currently missing out on across the whole of Europe across Australia and in half of the United States of America, is that currently legislation prevents what humans have been doing with food waste for thousands of years, and that is to feed it back to our livestock. Instead, we grow grains and soy, as we know, in South America to feed livestock in Europe and Uh, and across the Western world, traditionally, livestock would be fed with our leftovers. That's what pigs and chickens are for within our agro-economic system. But since 2001, after the foot and mouth outbreak was blamed on a miscreant swill feeder who wasn't treating the food waste according to the law, the European Union rules made it impossible to feed any catering waste or any waste waste that had been handled under the same roof as meat to be fed to livestock. Now, I can understand, obviously, the health concerns, but put in place a good regulatory system, it's absolutely the case that we can have a safe system for recycling food waste. And indeed, a very recent Cambridge University study uh, was published showing just how much land we could save if we fed food waste to our livestock instead of importing soy from South America. A piece of forest the size of whales each year could be saved
11: Will it need more scientific evidence or simply more willing policymakers in the first place?
13: It needs both. Absolutely getting microbiologists to confirm the best possible, most energy efficient and safest way of treating food waste and ensuring that veterinarians and nutritionists can analyse the uh, value of any particular food waste stream for for animal feed. All of these things will help. But the figures are so glaringly obviously in favour of Feeding food waste to pigs. It really comes down to a question of what faith we can have in a regulatory system that in the past went wrong. And what I would emphasize is that we're not uh, advocating for a return to the bad old days before 2001 but a proper modern system, uh, a little bit analogous to the system that guarantees food safety in the human food supply chain. (laughs) We depend on a system that feeds hundreds of millions of people every day uh, to guarantee food security. We need something similar for livestock feed.
11: These bigger issues of global waste, is that something that can only be solved with policies?
13: No, I've seen in my campaigning life such dramatic changes on these very issues that it gives me hope that with a bit of energy, we can wake up the giant, the giant that is the global citizenship. If we want to make food available to people who really need it, we can really help to do that by doing something quite simple, which is to enjoy food that we have and not throw it away. That's really such a simple thing that everyone can practice in their own homes and indeed demand that the businesses that they give money to every day also comply with that really basic ethical criterion which is not to dispose of food when it's perfectly edible.
3: Absolutely vital stuff that's Tristram Stewart talking to Felicity Bedford thanks to our other guests this week Tim Benton, Alison Bentley, Eric Levy, Dan Stott and Tim Minchell. Finally, it's our Question of the Week with Connie Orbach, and she likes the sound of Che's question.
4: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega.
12: Why is it that our voices sound so different to how we think we sound?
5: In radio, I am constantly disappointed by the sound of my own voice, so I was keen to bring in the experts for this one. Here's Dr Nick Gibbons, a specialist in voice surgery.
14: The way we hear is by sound waves, which are pressure waves going through the air, coming in through the ear canal, through the eardrum, and the small bones of hearing into the inner ear, where it creates electrical signals that get sent to the brain, and the brain interprets that as hearing. Now that's the majority of the the way we hear. However, the second way we hear is actually sound waves, pressure waves, going in through the bones of the skull, directly into the inner ear, rather than through the ear canal. But when we speak, the vocal folds vibrate and produce sound waves. And because the sounds are being produced inside us, a lot more of it is actually transmitted through the tissues and the bones of the skull directly into the inner ear. The frequency at which the tissues of the head transmit sound best is quite low. So these low frequencies are accentuated. So our voices sound, to us a bit lower and a bit more resonant so when you hear yourself on a a tape recorder it always sounds a bit more tinny and a bit more whiny and a bit higher so we always go oh no that sounds terrible but actually that's what everyone else hears the only person who hears the voice as you sound is you
5: how disappointing. In radio, we add resonance to make people sound uh, a bit more godlike. I yes. guess it's, <laughs> it's like having a producer on our, on our own voices.
8: Yes,
14: I imagine that's exactly right. It's the depth and the volume and the, the broadness of the voice. It sounds very good.
5: So when I have a cold and inside my head, I feel like I'm blocked off from the rest of the world. I can't hear myself properly. What's going on there?
14: Two things there. First one is uh, when you normally produce a voice... The vocal folds vibrate and like ripples in a pond when you throw stones in them. That's what happens when the pressure waves come from your voice box. And they come out through your mouth and they come out through your nose and they reverberate around your sinuses. When you've got a cold, you don't have the nose and the sinuses. They're completely blocked up. So it's only reverberating around your throat and your mouth. So immediately, that's going to alter the sound of your voice. The second thing is, even less sound is going out of your mouth and in through your ears for you to hear it, and more of it, percentage-wise, is reverberating up through the tissues of your skull into your inner ear. So it's going to sound even more different than it is normally.
5: Well, there we go. I guess it'll always sound better in my head. Next week, we'll be answering Warren's question.
12: We all know
14: that the galaxy contains billions of stars. Since the amount of energy that all those stars have been pouring out is obviously enormous... How come space is so cold?
3: Why indeed. If you know, email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum.
2: And that is just about all we've got time for. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Felicity Bedford for producing the programme. On the show next week, we're going to be brewing up a storm because we'll explore the crazy world of caffeine. Are you like me? dead hooked. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC, and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. And until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and
0: development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years.